Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Right here we are redefining society. I was going to say redefining cybersecurity, but that's uh, actually it's Sean's show. Uh, but in a way, I think I have slipped off the tongue here because we are going to talk more specifically about cybersecurity today, or at least more than what I normally talk about cybersecurity. Except that when it touches society, I feel like I have to bring it into the show, and so. It's, it's become cybersecurity something that, I don't know, people don't really want to talk about it unless they are in the industry, but they're going to have to. <laughs> it's kind of like you can't keep closing your eyes or put your, your head under the sand or pretend that I'm not seeing, if you don't see, I don't see you, you don't see me. So the truth is that we are dealing with that. And I think one of uh, the proofs for that is the fact that more and more there are news related to cybersecurity, and uh, it's not just about the the good old breach, right? It's uh, there are certain regulation regulator they want to know more about it, and I'm not just talking about Europe, but I'm talking about the U.S. in this case. And uh, I I got uh, this pitch for a conversation related to an article about um, some whistle whistleblower award that a uh, little higher than than what we we thought it was going to be the the record already which when i saw the number it wasn't that it wasn't that low anyway and <laughs> i brought here uh igor volovich with uh, i hope i didn't chop that the last name and i pronounced it correctly but if i did uh, you can correct me from uh, cumulus and uh, he has some uh, some some thoughts about this article, and I think we're going to go well above and beyond this article. So, Iger, uh, introduce yourself, and let's get started. Igor Volovich, so it's actually pronounced Igor, but it's a common there mistake. So, and, of course, you've got <laughs> a foreign name, too, so I'm sure you get a lot of that. Um, so, uh, Igor Volovich, I'm with Cumulus. I'm the Vice President of Compliance Strategy, which 
well, what's compliance strategy? It's a kind of a nebulous concept. And well, strategy is difficult to define to begin with, but compliance strategy is really a way to think about the roadmap towards compliance and, and what does compliance do for an organization? These are the kinds of things that I like to talk about. There is a kind of a perception of compliance as a, uh, a lagging indicator, something that you look in the rearview mirror of and you just kind of look at it and say, well, this is what happened three months ago, three weeks ago, three years ago. If you look in the federal space, very common for compliance data to be very old, uh, which means it's irrelevant for security purposes, right? So these are the kinds of things I like to talk about, the convergence of compliance, risk, security, operationalizing compliance, bringing into a real world, into real time, and making less of a paper exercise, really a tool of risk management. And so that's that's what my function is. I do a lot of evangelizing. I talk within the industry and, and hopefully outside the industry also. And as you mentioned, cybersecurity touches everything. So we know that, right? And when people talk about cybersecurity, they typically think about technology, right? That's, the, that's sort of almost synonymous. You think about cyber, you think about hackers, you think about the matrix and, you know, bad guys somewhere sitting in Russia and Belarus and Romania and many, many other places, right? hundred countries have hackers operating you know, actively. So, but it's not really about that. A really, a better synonym for that is trust. Cybersecurity is really about trust, and that's that's what I'd love to talk about and and talk about the context of this uh, huge whistleblower award. Yep, yep. And I I think that when you when you see a news like this and and you you read it for what it is, but then like I said at the beginning, and we were talking before we start recording, it could be a symptoms of many other things happening in the industry and the way that regulators are coming to to face and to deal with this reality and how, and I think this could be a good start of the conversation, how compliance is not, it's not enough. We have to kind of social engineer ourselves into <laughs> think uh, outside of the box. And I'm wondering if this, you know, going for compensating more people that blow the whistle, it's, uh, it's again, it's the way to go. Or it's a way to kind of face defeat at this particular time where we need to use this kind of strategy instead of the technology that should resolve technology. So I would like to know what is your thought on this and if compliance is the reason maybe why we we're getting here. I'll make it very simple. And Marco, this is a great question, right? You know, is compliance the, the culprit? And uh, my contention is it is, right? In fact, I'm yeah, writing go. an article That's right simple. now. It's, I'll make it very simple, right? Compliance is at fault. And here's why, right? So when we think about compliance and what the function of compliance is, regulatory compliance, industry-specific compliance mandates, uh, executive orders, et cetera, uh, all of it is meant to uh, really control behavior, right? We're trying to mandate behavior. We're trying to verify that the behavior is actually occurring the way that we intended to occur. And, and all of it is about managing risk, right? Unfortunately, the way compliance has been structured um, in many industries, including cybersecurity industry, it's typically a lagging indicator. What I mean by that is we're capturing past state. It's a historical reporting function. So a control fails or control is not in place. Uh, where we, we say control is left open or it's deficient in some way. And we talk about control, we mean anything. You know, it could be a policy, it could be a um, an operational control, it could be some kind of a workflow that has to be in place and it's not, or it's not being performed correctly, or it could be a piece of technology. And, and when you talk about technical controls, that's what we refer to them, typically a piece of, piece of technology, right? Um, if that's not in place, it creates what we call a vulnerability. It's an opening. It's it's an opportunity for the bad guys to take advantage and exploit the environment and really dig in, go lateral, go go vertical, and extract data, 
encrypt data, create ransomware scenarios, et cetera, et cetera, right? So compliance is supposed to give us this consistent model, right? The frameworks, the standards, the regulations, the very prescriptive guidance on how to manage risk, except, you know, and these are all great ideas. You know, do this, don't do that. Protect yourself this way. Watch out for these kinds of threats. And, and it captures the kinds of threat profile that different industries have. So all of these are great ideas, except all of them suffer from the same problem. The problem is they're always capturing that past state, right? You're looking backwards. And that's where the failure point is, right? So great ideas, terrible implementation. And it's nobody's fault. It's just the way it's been done. So... Based on what you just said, and I, I definitely agree. I mean, I, on one side, you know, coming from sociology, I, I, I wish people used common sense and we didn't need to tell them to, you know, I don't know, put the seatbelt or to, don't, don't burn yourself, don't put the house on fire, but they do. So we have to actually put it on labels and then, you know, tell people what to do. So let's not go there. But let's, we expect that people that are in cybersecurity, they are expert. They do it for a reason, right? Because they believe in what they do and they know that there is an enemy out there which is going to screw up things. So is that compliance not, is it compliance not working because the standard, that baseline is too low on your opinion or it's very much a, the concept that we shouldn't use as we're using it. So the legacy kind of compliance, the traditional compliance that captures that past state, that's basically a paper exercise. You know, things happen, you do an audit or you do an assessment and you figure out that a control has failed. At some point later down the line, that piece of information winds up on some dashboard or on some report that somebody may or may not read, right? And there are regulatory requirements. Of course, the SEC requires disclosures. CISA, which is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is a subset of the Department of Homeland Security, requires disclosure within actually hours of a breach. So there, there are things like that, right? They're in place. The standards themselves are good. They're constantly being updated. They're very detailed. They're very advanced. There are literally scientists, computer scientists sitting at NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies over in Maryland, um, creating these standards, right? They have industry input. I mean, these are great ideas, right? Some of these are industry self-regulatory standards like PCI DSS. This is meant to secure the uh, credit card infrastructures. Um, so these are fantastic ideas. If we only followed them in real time, and this is where the caveat comes in, right? If we could do it in real time, a lot of this stuff wouldn't exist. We wouldn't see these breaches every day. You know, the news headlines, every day somebody's getting breached. There was a ransomware attack. You know, if we were tracking it in real time, we'd probably get one a minute, right? It's happening all over the place. The malware ecosystem. I mean, I spent years and years working with law enforcement, chasing bad guys around the world, trying to disrupt criminal networks that are using malware. To, to create things like ransomware attacks and, and, and data extraction models, et cetera, right? So we have all the tools in place. We have complete surplus of the kinds of technology you need. There are over 4,500 vendors working in the cybersecurity arena, right? There is no shortage of technology. And the idea that we have a shortage of people, we can have a conversation about that. There, there, there are some thoughts around that, whether it's a shortage of talent or it's a deep, artificially depressed pay scale for the talent, right? It's it's basic economics, right? Supply, mm -hmm. you know, demand drives supply. We have plenty of demand on paper, but somehow we just can't turn out enough talent. There's a conversation to be had about that. Maybe a separate podcast, right? But uh, <laughs> but in terms of tools, technologies, 
uh, understanding of from an operational perspective how to do this, right? We all know how to do this, right? And the standards inform us in doing it right. The thing that's missing is bringing it to real time. So is compliance broken? From that perspective, absolutely. If only compliance could be automated done in real time, we could have the kind of convergence that we had experienced before with things like DevSecOps. And maybe most of the audience probably haven't heard that term, but basically development, security, and operations, operationalizing the development of, of computer code and making sure that it's secure at the same time, right? Not bolting on security after the fact. So we're talking about a similar transformation that took probably the most of the last two decades that happened in IT for, for that concept to be embraced. And I certainly don't want to spend the next 20 years evangelizing this idea, but if I have to, I will, right? I'll, I'll delay my retirement and I'll keep pushing this, uh, pushing this idea because I think it's super critical, right? We have invested so much into compliance and so much is spent on compliance. I mean, companies spend close to 40% of their security budget sometimes on compliance and they extract no value out of it from a security perspective. It's strictly a paper exercise, right? We're capturing past state, we're reporting it, and then we rinse, repeat, wipe hands on pants, and we do it again next quarter, next year, et cetera, right? No value, universally derided, uh, like this function, folks don't want it, right? CISOs don't want it, chief security officers, they hate having compliance in their portfolio. It's just a drain of resources and money and, and workflow and cycles, right? And they get no value out of it. So the only thing, the only answer from my perspective is you've got to bring compliance into real time. Hmm. And it's tech, I mean, when I look at, so I have two, two thoughts. One, uh, before I go into the nowadays technology of what could allow us to have this compliance in real time, I'm curious to, to know what the answer is there. It's, uh, I want to think a little bit more about this article. Mm -hmm. And do you see this? I mean, what, what is the stroke you and said, I'm going to pitch to talk about this article on the news, right? Because I, I kind of, when I saw it, I was like, that's not good. Are we really going there? Because again, as I said at the beginning, we have no other way to do it. Or is just a, something that is just going to be so effective anyway that uh, it's kind of like a, a necessary evil in a way because people don't have a good perception of wisdom blower, <laughs> not lately, rather than ever. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, we we literally this morning we had hearings in Congress from whistleblowers uh, who came out of the FBI, right? And we're not going to get into politics of it, but you know, whistleblowers, yeah, they they get hurt, they suffer. I've personally worked in in places where I had to protect whistleblowers and, and step in to protect their livelihood and protect their jobs and and keep the company from actually hurting itself uh, because they were about to. Uh, to act in a retaliatory fashion against a whistleblower, right? Because these are protected acts, right? So I've been very familiar with this function for a long time. I've I've worked with whistleblowers, I've protected them. And I, I feel that whistleblowers are really kind of that ultimate canary in the mind, right? If yeah. you can you can try to to uh, operate in an atmosphere of malfeasance, you can try to conceal things. In fact, I wrote an article about whistleblowing in 2015 and I co-wrote it with a actually a famous whistleblower attorney in DC, Debbie Katz. Um, who you probably have seen on TV, right? In some congressional hearings. Um, the idea back in those days, for me in 2015, when I wrote it, what, what I said was, look, whistleblowers act as this ultimate safety valve, right? No matter how much a company tries to conceal, there are two things that can happen. 
to really blow the covers off of, of some something like this. One, it's a whistleblower. The other one is a breach, right? A breach happens and all of that concealment goes away, right? You can only play this plausible deniability game for so long. You can say, well, cybersecurity is too complex. Compliance is too complex. We didn't know. We didn't understand, right? And more and more, we're seeing agencies like the FTC and the SEC and the federal government in general, right? And also the regulators within the industries themselves, like FINRA, they're saying, look, you don't get to have plausible deniability. It is your job to know. Whether you know or you don't, that's on you, right? So pretending, you know, kind of head in the sand, as you mentioned before, right? Playing the ostrich game. Well, it's too, you know, we didn't know, right? It was too hard and I'm not equipped. I'm not, I'm not qualified to know these things. That's not acceptable, right? And so the, the problem with, um, with enforcement that we've seen from the SEC and the FTC in the past is it's, it's sporadic, right? It's... Um, it's not consistent because they can only act upon known past acts, right? So again, we get into the same retroactive perspective, right? We're right. Looking yep. history. It's acts that already occurred. So it's meant to create this deterrent effect. But guess what? We've been doing deterrence since the days of Hammurabi, right? The first compliance code that's known to us, right? The first written compliance code was the building codes within the laws of Hammurabi, the code of laws of Hammurabi, right? And what do they say? You know, if you're a builder and you build a house and it collapses on the family that lives in there, it's your responsibility <laughs> and we collapse the house onto you, right? Very direct, right? And yet, and of course, and from there we evolved to the current fire codes and building codes of today. But the model is still the same. 3,700 years later, here we are. It's deterrence, right? And with the complexity yeah. of cybersecurity, it's not as simple as a building collapsing under somebody's head, right? It's a control that failed. It's somebody forgot to do something or they intentionally didn't do something, right? And, and it's, it's easy to hide that. So ultimately, you've got these two safety valves. One, well, it's a breach, right? Exposes everything. And then you get to realize, well, you weren't secure at all. And on the other hand, You've got whistleblowers who will expose it. And that's where the SEC comes in with their rewards. And they should be there, right? That incentive should absolutely be there. We're seeing the DHS technology has a civilian cyber-specific whistleblower program that they're rolling out there and evangelizing very hard. They're trying to tell people, look, if you know something, say something, you will be rewarded. And in fact, your reward could be a percentage of the recovered sums. Uh, we had a recent case, um, federal contractor, uh, Aerodyne Rocketjet. Federal contractor worked with NASA, launched rockets, um, and they were executing contracts for a number of years, claiming to be cyber compliant. Well, a whistleblower came out, actually happened to be their director of security, and said, "We've been lying for years, right? So about 1.2, 1.3 billion dollars worth of contracts were executed. They got paid, the rockets flew, and yet they pulled the covers out. Often turns out they've been lying about it. So." Uh, I think the company settled for $9 million with the federal government and the whistleblower got paid, I think, somewhere around $2.5 million. So on the scale of things, you know, $1.3 billion, $9 million, to that what's the cost of doing business, to that whistleblower, right? It's, it's a life-changing event. And yet folks keep coming out because they're so incentivized, not by the monetary reward. I mean, that's important, right? Because basically what you're doing is you're setting them up for life because they've lost their career. Right. So that that's really the purpose of it. Um, but more importantly, they're driven by ethics and you depend on that. Right. And to me, uh, I mean, I applaud whistleblowers because they serve that ultimate as that ultimate safety valve. Right. That's why they're critical. Yep. Yeah, I know. I, there's so many thoughts in my head. One uh, being Italian and I'm um, thinking, you know, the, the, the culture of the mafia, you know, not to advertise, but that's that's what it is, you know. Everybody just shut up and nobody's seen anything, nobody's done anything, and otherwise, 
else <laughs> will be consequences. And now this is the extreme where, you know, it's delinquent, but what you describe and all the other situation that made me think about it, it's not just a cybersecurity issue. It's more of a, a human <laughs> issue, right? So uh, the point is, are we ever going to um, address that or is it just part of being being human? So I mean, in a way, I'm like, if we want to take this covering up or having the fear of losing a job, losing a career and all of that, and repercussion on actually being honest and ethics and saving maybe people life, maybe saving uh, a lot of money to a company. Uh, is there like a magic uh, technology in AI that is going to come and like, look, I got no feelings. <laughs> I take care of that. I'll see what's wrong. And what are you going to do? You know, I don't need money to, to pay my, right. my rent. Right. So, right. I don't know. I mean, Great it's a big question, question right? Uh, you know, you mentioned Amerta, right? And so there's a recent article that came out in April that said that a third of organizations actually admit to covering up cyber breaches, right? So if they don't go public, they just keep them on the wraps, right? And 42% of IT and security professionals actually were told to conceal breaches and conceal malfeasance and conceal noncompliance. So again- Even if legally, you're supposed to- Of course. Absolutely. And the SEC, I mean, just for the, the public, <laughs> for the audience. That's right. Yeah. I mean, because we ultimately what we're talking about is, is trying to correctly price the cybersecurity risk into, well, decisions, but ultimately the shareholder value, right? The, the, the stock price. And so when you look at the SEC and their enforcement mandate, they look at it strictly from that. You know, there, there's a duty to disclose public information. And this is critical, right? You know, cybersecurity is no longer just an, an item on a balance sheet or it's, it's just, a, you know, one line on the annual report, you know, the 10, or the quarterly report, right? So the 10Q, 10K, the SEC is expanding its guidance. And in fact, it's saying, look, A, you have to have cybersecurity expertise on your board. B, you don't get to have this plausible deniability because, you know, cybersecurity is just too difficult, right? We just didn't know. We couldn't figure it out. It's your job to know. It's your job to figure it out. And it's your ultimately your accountability, your responsibility and accountability to report this credibly, right? So you can't, you can't play this game anymore. And when you don't, you get these big judgments. And of course, on the one hand, you're incentivized to do the right thing. On the other hand, the whistleblowers are incentivized to disclose when you're not doing it, right? Of course, the ultimate disclosure is the breach, right? Because once it goes public, you know, you, you can't conceal it. And so then you wind up with congressional testimony like, uh, you know, the CEO of uh, Colonial Pipeline, if you remember a couple of years ago, sitting in Congress and saying, look, here's my compliance report. We were fine, right? We didn't have password one, two, three as a password. And yet, People were able to get in, right, and exploit. And it was very simple exploitation, right? It, it didn't it didn't require very advanced hacking techniques because again, they they left something off of their uh, of their compliance report. They didn't know about it. It was maybe an honest mistake. But here's the thing: this idea of like it's an honest mistake because well, things are just too complex. Again, out the window, no go. And if you're a public company, absolutely no go, right? You have to know. And Let's say this, right? And, I, and, and not to take too, too, uh, to go far afield on this, but we have seen historically, at least for the last you know, 15 years, we've been waiting for the, for the time where either consumers or shareholders will wise up and start making their investment or their buying decisions on the cybersecurity posture of either the, the, the company they want to invest in or the company they want to buy from. And we haven't seen either, right? What we have seen is we've seen bad guys 
do insider trading based on their internal knowledge of non-public information that they would get through hacking, right? They would break into a company, figure out their quarterly results, and then they would they would short the stock or they buy more of the stock, they do options plays, et cetera, based on that. that so the bad guys who are not constrained by any sort of organizational boundaries or, or any sorts of you know ethics, that's kind of your pure economics at play, right? You know, the bad guys always find a way. Right. And, you know, as Milton Friedman said, you know, regulation is government intrusion into efficiency of the market. Right. Well, that's pure efficiency of the market. Right. The bad guys, they don't respect anything. They break in. They're the ones who have been able to figure out how to price it, price cybersecurity into the price of stock. The community writ large has not been able to. Right. And so to me, again, when the when the SEC does their enforcement action and and also does their whistleblower awards, the again, these are symptomatic of the fact that we don't have an economic model a sophisticated model for the investors to really price that uh, price this in. It's an afterthought, like much like most of the security is an afterthought and compliance is most definitely an afterthought, right? So is this. And, and it's problematic, right? So we have to rely on things like whistleblower awards and SEC enforcement action or FTC enforcement action, DHS, CISA enforcement action, et cetera, et cetera. Because again, it's, it's sporadic, it's haphazard, it's not consistent. And this is not a way to assure trust in a digital ecosystem, in a digital economy, right? That's the thing that kind of keeps me up at night. So when folks kind of go, well, what about this breach? What about that breach? What about this standard? What about this framework? Which one should we pick and how should we apply it? Pick the one that's relevant to your industry because that most likely represents the most relevant threat profile for that industry, right? PCI, DSS, cardholder environments, you know, FISMA, federal environments, et cetera, et cetera, right? There's many, many frameworks. Uh, But... The one thing that I will say is no matter the framework that you pick or that's picked for you by regulators, strive to bring it into real time. Whatever you do, make it real time. And guess what? Security operations is already happening in real time. It's been happening forever. We would never dream of doing security operations, running our socks, right, security operation centers on data from three months ago. It's impossible. It's inconceivable. But yet in compliance, mm-hmm. we accept them. Right? So there's this one kind of stepchild, the redheaded stepchild, uh, sitting off to the side at like a little kid's table. You know, the big boys are playing with the big toys. You know, they're playing with real-time toys. They're pulling data into their sims, they're into their data lakes. They're making analytics happening in real time. And here's compliance off to the side, you know, uh, with their pocket protectors and their, you know, tape glasses, doing nerd work of pulling these controls in by hand, making phone calls, doing data calls, shuffling a lot of paper. Really, I mean, I not, not to denigrate anybody, but I call these human fax machine functions. Like they're acting as human fax machines. They're sneaker netting this data around their environment. And by the time it gets there, there's huge compliance lag built in, right? By the time you know of some failure, it's been months. And by the time you actually get it on some report and somebody makes a decision about it and they get to do something about it, mitigate that risk, fix that hole, fix that vulnerability, it could be months, if not years. And we've seen it time and again and again, right? The, the mantra for the industry is compliant, but not secure. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. Where we're struggling as an industry to really elevate compliance to that same time scale that we've had with risk and, and security operations. Yeah, I mean, a lot of thinking, like where technology is nowadays, and we always say regulation cannot move as fast as technology. It's too fast. We're always catching up. That can come with chat gpt and copyright laws for example just to bring one out there or how we're going to use the new technology that all of the time is out there so talking about new technology i'd like to to wrap this conversation with you doing what i like to do the most which is 
asking you to put a hat, like your futurist hat on, and and which often is also the present, because I'm assuming from your com things that you say, you I'm understanding that this real time compliance is possible. It's not just a a dream, and uh, maybe you know to 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 look at what could be in an ideal utopian cybersecurity business world maybe in 10 15 years from now just so that we have something to to think about as we move forward absolutely i think the the re to me the real answer is automation and reducing our reliance on manual labor as much as possible especially within the compliance sphere right because that's where a lot of that manual the, the, those manual cycles go right and I hate to say, but they go there to die, right? That, you know, we spend all this time sneaker netting this data or, you know, manually deriving this data from our environments, trying to gain that visibility and dispel this kind of fog of war across our enterprise environments, trying to figure out what's going on, right? I mean, basically, let's just simplify it, right? What is going on and how do I know what's going on, right? I mean, it's, it becomes kind of a philosophical question, right? You know, here's what I think I know about my environment. How much can I trust it? How much can I believe it? And so you have to ask that kind of a macro question, a next level question. Well, here's the data. Can I trust this data? And so you have to, you know, who's watching the watchers, so to speak, right? And so, mm -hmm. again, automation to me is not just a cool thing that we go, hey, we're automating, right? It's great. You know, we're going to buy some technology and we're going to automate and we're going to automate the data flows. We're going to ensure that analytics are happening in real time. We're going to enable technologies like big data and data lakes and cloud and, you know, make all of this kind of come together in real time, give us real time insights. It's not just for the sake of the technology evolution, right? And I think a lot of these conversations, unfortunately, start there. They start with the tech. They start what I call bottom up, right? We start with the tech and we try to then figure out, well, what are the use cases? What are, what's the value we're trying to derive out of it? I, I tend to work in reverse. I tend to envision that end state, as you said, put on my futures hat. You know, what's the N plus two, N plus three? What does the future look like? What is that nirvana state? And to me, the nirvana state is automating everything that can be automated. So automate the automatable and figure out the absolute things that you've got to have human cycles on, right? Where is a human brain required and where it's not, right? And if you have hands moving data, get away from that, right? That, that is the most basic automation that you can do today. And it's not really a question of technology. It's a question of strategy. You know, if you are married to these legacy models, these legacy operational frameworks where you have silos, you know, you have different departments, right? And there was a great quote from the director of CISA, Jen Easterly. She said, our adversaries are unbounded by bureaucratic organizational boundaries, right? They don't worry about, is it in compliance? Is it risk? Is it security? Is it IT? Is it, you know, a business unit? They don't care. Data is data, right? And we need to adopt that same mentality, that same philosophy. It's just data, right? And once you start converging your mindset then you start converting the data points, right? And once you realize, well, a lot of this data is the same data and you don't have compliance data, security data, IT data, it's all just data. And we see some of the forward-thinking enterprises out there doing this already. Uh, you know, I'm aware of a couple who are in the healthcare space who are actually converging a lot of that data, dumping it into a data lake and letting AI and ML, machine learning, figure out these patterns that are human, like human would not be able to, to uh, figure out, right? And they're, fusing their fraud cases in the healthcare space. They're fusing their financial cases. They're fusing their cybersecurity cases together. And they're figuring out how one feeds into another. Like it, it, we, we're standing at the precipice, especially with things like chat GPT and generative AI, where the machine can really figure out 
how to kind of program itself, right? It's super exciting for me because the biggest thing in cybersecurity is the volume of data. But it's what we call the fog of more, right? The fog of war, but it's really oh. the fog of We have so much. Yeah. Fog of more. Right? So for me, automation, augmenting with machine learning, augmenting with AI, it carries a lot of promise. But again, we have to be very careful at how we apply it, right? Because then the questions start to come up. Well, you know, I've got 400 analysts doing compliance in my environment. I mean, we're talking like large federal environments, large federal contractors. It's not uncommon to have several hundred analysts who are working on nothing but compliance. Well, what happens to them, right? What, what do they do? Do we, do we train them? Do we now get into a conversation that we had a few years back? Well, you know, our miners in West Virginia are going to have to write code. Like we're going to teach them at 55 years old how to write code, like that kind of stuff. It, it becomes really uncomfortable. And you hear folks like Elon Musk and, and others who are, you know, and Sam Altman, like they're talking about things like basic universal income, because then you, you start worrying about, well, what am I going to do with all these folks? They might be, you know, too far down their career path to really retrain or, or unwilling to retrain. So you have to kind of apply. It's a multifaceted conversation, right? You have to be applying systems design thinking uh, to the entire problem set, right? And you have to understand the political parameters, the, the uh, policy parameters, the strategy parameters, all of this has to come together, right? It cannot be just a conversation about technology or about AI or about compliance or regulation. All these things kind of have to be talked about at once. And it's really hard to do, to bring enough folks into one virtual forum where these conversations can happen because, you know, we tend to kind of follow our own tribe, right? That's the big problem. So I have a lot of hope. I think uh, going ahead two, three years, I think we were looking at AI being kind of a, a co-pilot. And in fact, Microsoft calls their AI co-pilot, right, within GitHub. Uh, so it's it's kind of a co-pilot. I don't think we're ever going to relinquish full control. It's kind of like we're never going to have robots flying commercial airliners. It'll just never happen. Why? Because we need skin in the game, right? You need the pilot up front because his life and my life are in the same boat, literally, right? You need that. Literally. Yep. Right? But uh, so I think it's more of a co-pilot conversation and I, and I can see more and more augmentation start to happen. So that's what I'd like to see. Um, and I think we're moving in that direction already. You know, um, big companies like Splunk, for instance, give them a shout out, you know, uh, a lot of respect for what they do. And they're onboarding those kinds of use cases. I mean, literally, there's literally not a company today that's not thinking about AI. A lot of it is kind of buzz, right? They're trying to capture momentum, capture the trend, capture the buzz, you know, trend jack, if you will. Uh, but in reality, if you're being conscious and conscientious and really have a lot of integrity in that conversation, I think you can derive a lot of value out of AI and uh, especially generative AI and large language models. Look, uh, you look in compliance, pulling all that data together, interpreting that data. Again, lots of volumes of data. It's very verbose. And interpreting it, absolutely. I mean, a large language model is totally meant for that. So I think we can increase our efficiencies uh, without scaring a lot of people up front and really demonstrate how we shrink that compliance latency, shrink that lag from the breach uh, or the, the control failing, us detecting it, and then doing something about it, really shortening that window of opportunity for the bad guys to exploit. That's really the ultimate objective here. Close that window down to zero if we can. We know we can't, but get to that, get as much data as we can. So if, we get, if we're doing that, I think that's kind of my litmus test. Ultimately, no matter what you bring me, technology, strategy, good ideas, good regulations, the question I always ask is, how will it shrink that window of opportunity for the bad guys, that, that vulnerability window? And if we're doing that, we're doing the right thing. Yeah, they sure don't care about regulation and compliance. That's, yeah. that's the bad guys. 
they don't care. <laughs> I, I have now, a perfect tagline for you. Hackers don't care about checkboxes. I've been saying that yep. for the last 15 years. Yeah, yeah. I've seen a few quotes uh, around that line, um, around the internet. And then coming back from RSA conference just from a couple of weeks ago, I can definitely say that AI and uh, everything is AI power was definitely one of the big <laughs> buzzwords during the during the event, and uh, rightfully so. Let, let's, let's accept that. I mean, it is a, an incredible tool, is a tool, and uh, we, we need to use it. I, li I love your co-pilot um, analogy there. And, and another thing that I want to say, closing this and thanking you because you, you're really, really a uh, great speaker. I, I was fascinated by you deliver everything, uh, Igor. And it also made me think about how what you said, it's obviously cybersecurity, but I could, could not stop from saying this is true for the medical field. And that's not just because you, you're wearing what you're wearing. Um, and people listening to the audio, they should definitely check out the YouTube. I'm not going to give it up. Um, but there is a field where there is so much knowledge. And why don't you want to have an artificial intelligence reading through millions and millions of scans and figure out why that is happening while it's happening. And there is too much knowledge to manage. And so goes for a lot of other, other things. So being a redefining society podcast, a lot of our audience is uh, maybe not too, uh, not only involved in cybersecurity, but they're curious. They want to know. And I think, I think you picture, you painted a really good pictures about what the, the future could look like. So I want to thank I you for that. And uh, I hope uh, you, you'll join uh, me again for some more conversation later on. And uh, for everybody listening, there'll be links to the article that started it all, even if we went way above and beyond <laughs> that article. And, uh, and connect with you and to your company and, uh, and anything you want to share in terms of resources with, uh, with us. So thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. I appreciate you having me on. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.